If Apollo 7 was NASA kicking the tires on its new flight hardware, Apollo 8 was the extended test drive. Aboard the December 1968 flight, Commander Frank Borman, Command Module Pilot James Lovell, and Lunar Module Pilot William Anders became the first three human beings to, to travel beyond Earth orbit. The trio circled the moon and returned home safely, making history in the process. Getting them around the moon was an ambitious goal, but NASA was emboldened by the Apollo spacecraft's performance on Apollo 7 and threatened by the possibility that the Russians could launch their new Soyuz capsule and send cosmonauts around the moon first. Can't have that, Jason. Can't Mm -hmm. have it. Of course, as we recently discussed, personnel issues plagued Apollo 7. For eight, NASA administrators included a coordinated performance of crew to the mission goals. I don't think subtweeting was a thing in 1968, but man, they sure did it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They also put them in isolation, uh, like more aggressively, so nobody got a cold, which, (laughs) like, again, (laughs) good call. Good plan. Good plan. Now, as we know, Apollo 8 went down as a proud moment for NASA and the American people. Pulling it off required years of work and training, as we will see. From the far side of the moon, this is a special episode of Liftoff, brought to you by Eero. We're marking the 50th anniversary of each crewed Apollo flight. Today, we're talking about Apollo 8. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. I am so excited for less mutiny and more moon on this episode. I think we should jump right in. Uh, that's right. We don't want a moon to knee. Oh, boy. All right. Now, before we get to the mission itself, I want to talk about Saturn V, because this is the first mission with Saturn V and people on board. It first flew as a part of the uncrewed Apollo 4 and Apollo 6 missions. Those were the tests with no people on top of a giant scary rocket. Apollo 8 would be the first time astronauts rode the uh, Saturn V into space. Of course... The Apollo 6 Saturn V, as we've talked about in a past episode, experienced several issues during its flight, including a violent pogo oscillation two minutes into flight that would have uh, pretty seriously injured crew if they were on board. Mm -hmm. After its troublesome first stage had been shed, the S2 second stage began to experience its own problems, having two engines shut down due to a ruptured fuel line and, my personal favorite, cross-wired connections between the motors and onboard instrumentation. Yeah, they were just trying to hotwire their <laughs> oh, <laughs> something. No. Uh, these issues caused, as you might expect, major concerns within NASA. The Pogo would have been strong enough to put the crew in danger. As I said, they, they could have been injured or worse. Uh, premature engine shutdowns, also not good. Could make mm-hmm. getting into the right orbit for lunar injection difficult, and then you can't go to the moon. Due to the tight timelines, remember there's a goal to be on the moon by the end of the decade, assembly of the Apollo 8 Saturn V began in December 1967, just a few weeks after Apollo 4. So by the time Apollo 6 flew and those problems were uncovered, the Saturn V's large stages actually already been stacked within the vehicle assembly building. So NASA went through the amazing amount of work to de-stack them. Yep. We're going to have to de-stack these guys. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to take them back apart to address the shortcomings. Uh, but the rocket was rejoined in the fall of 1968. That's a bad meeting, right? It's like, oh, we actually need to take this thing back apart so we can fix it. Yeah, yeah. But that was that was why Apollo 6 was was not good. It was not good. It was good in that they saw all these problems and they got to fix them, but it was bad in that they had to start taking rockets apart in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you talk about the end of the decade. Yeah, we're talking about a year away 
that's the deadline to get to the moon. So things are tightening up. Now, the rocket wasn't the only Apollo hardware causing delays. The lunar module was behind schedule. And in August of 68, NASA announced that testing the LEM would not be part of Apollo 8. Uh, that was a real bummer, as we'll find out for one of the crew members. Uh, NASA <laughs> Deputy Administrator Thomas Paine said that they planned for eight only to use the Apollo Command Service Module, the CSM, pending the successful flight of Apollo 7. Now, the Saturn V is important because it provided the power for Americans to get to the moon and have the ability to land on it. Right. So the Russians had this new Soyuz capsule, which had only flown once and it was a disaster and it killed the pilot. Um, But their rockets had enough lift capability so that they could get the Soyuz around the moon on what's called a free return trajectory. So it would just kind of go around and loop back. But the Russians had never tested anything like the Saturn V. This gave the Americans the advantage when it came to landing people on the moon and they wanted to press their advantage. So I think we need to talk a little bit about Apollo mission classifications at this point. Everyone's oh boy. favorite subject. I love it. In September of 1967, the following schedule was recommended by, and I, I'm calling this what they called it at the time, the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, Texas. They put together the schedule of these are the different types of missions we need in Apollo. So you had A, which was uncrewed Saturn V and CSM development flight. So Apollo 4 and 6, remember, there's no people. There's a block A uh, flight hardware crafts. There does this, does this thing fly or does it explode? Uh, you had uh, B flights, which were uncrewed lunar module development flights like Apollo 5. You had crewed CSM evaluation in low Earth orbit. So that was Apollo 7. You had crude CSM and limb development in low Earth orbit. So this was going to be eight, but as you said, the limb was behind. So this became Apollo 9. E was crude CSM and limb operations in a simulated lunar mission, basically an elliptical medium Earth orbit, uh, basically going out like 6,500 kilometers. E was actually never flown. As we get further into these missions, you'll see that they basically proved everything they needed to do in the E block without actually having to do it. Right. Exactly right. So here we are. It's the fall of 1968. The primary and backup crews are training for the, the cislunar flight as the Saturn V is deemed ready. Delaying the first Saturn V flight until the LEM was ready may have meant missing the goal of landing on the moon by the end of 69. And it altered the following mission types. So there was mission F, which was the crewed uh, CSM and LEM operations in lunar orbit. So you would go all the way to the moon and you do a dress rehearsal. This was what became Apollo 10. There was the G mission, which was the first lunar landing. That was Apollo 11. The H mission was precision landings with up to two-day stays on the moon with two lunar extravehicular activities or moonwalks. Apollo 12, the plan for Apollo 13, and Apollo 14. I missions were long-duration CSM lunar orbital surveys using a scientific instrument module mounted in an empty service module bay. These were eventually folded into the J missions, which were longer three-day stays using an extended limb with three lunar EVAs and a lunar roving vehicle, the moon car. And that was <laughs> Apollo 15, 16, and 17. Uh, Apollo 18 to 20 would have also been J missions if they had happened. Apollo 15 was originally planned as an H mission, but got upgraded to J as the program got shuffled around and uh, and curtailed. Yeah, I like that they didn't take this schedule as a strict, hard set of rules, that as the mission evolved and as the hardware was either late or ready or whatever, they adjusted as they went to meet the ultimate goal. And, and these mission types kind of became milestones as opposed to like a hard and fast rule, which I think is yeah. pretty impressive. And that's the story of Apollo 8, really. If, if, if there's one story 
about uh, the importance to the overall Apollo program. It was the fact that they went from a D mission to an E mission to this uncharted mission where they just said, we're going to go for this thing that's whatever is between E and F. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this different thing. And that uh, that is probably the decision, as we said last time, that ended up getting them to the moon on time. Mm-hmm. That brings us to... Our friend Frank Borman, who was expected to command Apollo 8 and was not thrilled that his mission may be a replay of Apollo 7. Because for a while, like we said, his mission was the E-block, which would have given his crew a nice view of the Earth from a distance never seen before by humans. But that's about it. And like we said, that didn't happen. Yeah, that's great. Like, hey, we're Frank, we're going to put you on this orbit where you're going to be as far away as a human's ever been. Am I going around the moon? Nope, no, no, you're just kind of going a little bit further away from the Earth. That record will be broken very quickly. <laughs> so Frank Borman was a veteran astronaut. He had set the 14-day spaceflight endurance record on Gemini 7. His inve- He was the investigator into the Apollo 1 fire uh, and, in fact, appeared before Congress and said, let's stop the witch hunt and get on with it, which endeared him to NASA officials. Um <laughs> Uh, so he was asked to oversee recovery efforts for Apollo 1 and then worked uh, with the Block 2 command module production crew in California. Uh, so he's overseeing his own capsule being built, and he knew it inside and out. And he really wanted to take it around the moon and not just to a nice view of Earth. So one day, Borman, uh, who is supervising the, the command module testing at the time, gets a phone call from Deke Slayton. It was official. Apollo 8 was not going to fly the E-mission. Instead, they're going to jump ahead and send them to the moon. Uh, Jim Lovell was Borman's partner on Gemini 7 and command pilot of Gemini 12. And for this mission, he was going to be the command module pilot. Now, you may remember the scene in Apollo 13 where Jim tells his wife Marilyn that they need to cancel their spring break vacation plans because he has a different destination. That actually happened, but it happened for this mission when they got the call. They weren't going to be able to go to Acapulco for Christmas because Jim was going to go around the moon instead. That's a good travel agent they they had. (laughs) But the rest of the family has to stay home in Houston. That's the problem. <laughs> that's, that's true. Jim goes to the moon. They stay in Houston. Oh, well. That's true. So uh, when you talk about William Anders, the lunar module pilot for Apollo 8, uh, he was a rookie but had been the backup pilot for Gemini 11. The change in mission plan was bittersweet for Anders. He was going to get to go around the moon, but he'd be on a ship without a lunar module. Uh, this wasn't great if you were the lunar module pilot, as you may imagine. <laughs> uh, and it meant that he'd probably never get to walk on the moon. Right. The idea was he was going to be an expert lunar module pilot, and then he would be able to be on the lunar module for one of the moon landings. And the way things were stacking up and the mission numbers, that was it looking like it wasn't going to happen. So he gets this great moment of uh, being in this first crew around the moon, but he's trading that for the possibility of of actually walking on the moon. Which he never did. Which he never did, no. Um, So we got the rocket set, we got the crew set. It's probably time to get into space. But before we do that, I want to take a break and tell you about our sponsor, Eero. Eero lets you build a Wi-Fi system perfectly tailored to your home. Considering the high bandwidth world we all live in now, we're streaming video, we're doing uh, group FaceTimes, all sorts of stuff like that. You need a distributed system in your home to make sure you're getting the best speeds available. With Eero, you can install an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your house and do it in just a few minutes without any trouble setting up. It's got the second-generation Eero device. That's where it all starts. It's got three different uh, 5 gigahertz radios. That means increased speed and range. 
sits flat on any service, connects over Ethernet or even wirelessly. And then you can easily expand coverage throughout your whole home by adding in Eero Beacons, which are little devices you plug directly into your wall and let you reach every corner of your home. Uh, Eero is also introducing something called Eero Plus now. It's a, a service that provides simple, reliable security to help defend all the devices in your home from malware, phishing, and unsuitable content. It can automatically tag sites that contain uh, violent, illegal, or adult content so you have powerful parental controls. It includes ad blocking functionality to help improve load times for websites that are full of privacy invading ad tracking. And it's also possible to have Eero Plus check the sites you visit against a database of threats to prevent you from visiting anything malicious. Eero Plus even includes subscriptions to Encrypt.me for VPN protection, 1Password for password management, and Malwarebytes for antivirus solutions. I have Eero in my house. It works great. Every corner of my house, even the ones that are populated not with computers or tablets or phones, but with smart devices all have a strong wi-fi signal now that was not the case before so super convenient easy to set up and uh really i have no wi-fi problems i don't even think about it anymore because it all just works never think about wi-fi again be like me get a hundred dollars off the Eero base unit and two beacons package and one year of Eero plus go to eero.com slash liftoff and at checkout use the promo code liftoff that's eero.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff thanks to Eero for supporting this show and Relay FM. Good morning. I'm Frank Reynolds. And these are the men who will make this historic voyage to the moon, the crew of Apollo 8. They are in their uh, command module right now. They've been in there since 5.34 this morning at Cape Kennedy when the hatch was closed. Uh, the weather at the Cape is perfect. And uh, astronauts Borman, Lovell, and Anders are all set to go. The weather at the Cape, which had caused <clears throat> some concern last night and uh, yesterday, possibly it might interfere with today's launch, has cleared up, and everything is now apparently uh, all set to go. Apollo 8 lifted off on December 21st, 1968, from launch pad 39A at Kennedy Space Center. As we mentioned, this was the first Saturn V launch complete with crew. This work that had been done on the Saturn V really did pay off. They put the command and service modules into low Earth orbit without any of those nail-biting moments of previous launches. T-minus 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9. We have ignition sequence start. The engines are armed. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. We have commit. We have, we have liftoff. Lift off at 7.51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. While the uncrewed test of the translunar injection burn had failed, this time the S-4B third stage performed flawlessly before being jettisoned. After jettison, the crew used the spent upper stage to practice station keeping, but Borman became concerned at the short distance between the spacecraft and its rocket, and after some debate with the ground, the reaction control system thrusters, the RCS, on the service module uh, were used to move away from the S-4B. Yeah, you gotta get, get that. don't want that rocket near you. Just leave it, let it coast away, go somewhere else. A lot of firsts on this mission, a long list of firsts achieved by Apollo 8. Uh, among them is the fact that the crew were the first humans to pass through the Van Allen radiation belts. It was believed the crew would experience minimal radiation thanks to the speed at which the Apollo spacecraft was moving. Even so, each crew member wore a personal radiation dosimeter, which indicated that they had received about 1.61 milligray of radiation, which is equivalent to one and a half chest x-rays. 
Then there was the matter of solar flares, which could bathe cislunar space in radiation. NASA technical note D7080 outlined the risks. I read this document this week, and let me read a little bit of it for you. Because only approximately 20% of flares result in particle events, so again, uh, a lot of radiation in an area, it is not necessary to change normal mission procedures on the basis of radio frequency or visual observations alone. Rather, radiation sensors on board solar orbit and Earth orbit satellites, as well as on board the Apollo spacecraft itself, are used to confirm a particle event. Only after the appearance of particles is confirmed would action need to be taken to protect the crew. So NASA would have about eight hours, according to this paper, from the time uh, radioactive particles are confirmed to the time of peak radiation dose. The plan, as stated in this document, was basically always to keep the mission going unchanged. <laughs> like there's this whole big article, a whole big paper, and this basically says we're going to stay the course. The only time that that could be different is if the crew were on the surface of the moon and there would be a large solar radiation event. Then uh, they would limit their time outside, maybe limit their time on the surface itself and return to the uh, to the command module ahead of schedule. But it never came up. I love that this report is out there as a PDF so that you can do some light reading uh, 50 years yes. later. It's a good reminder <laughs> that uh, these are public records. NASA is a government agency, and it's paid for by our tax dollars. Uh, uh, and uh, PDFs are the uh, the outcome of that, I guess. Yeah, I guess. They didn't even know it at the time, but that's where they ended up. Mm-hmm. The 234,000-mile, 66-hour journey to the moon started off a little roughly. Now, that issue with being too close to the S-4B already put the crew behind schedule. Then Jim Lovell struggled with using the onboard sextant to confirm the spacecraft's location in space due to debris around the spacecraft after the third stage had been vented during orbit. 11 hours into the flight, the crew had to perform its first correction burn. This was a short 2.4 second burn of the SPS engine at the end of the service module. It was designed to basically coat the combustion chamber in preparation for longer burns later in the flight. This went well, but RCS thrusters did have to be used again to make up speed, as this burn ended up being a little bit less effective as planned due to low propellant pressure. Now, on the way to the moon, the CSM was placed into what's called passive thermal control which they called the barbecue roll. <laughs> it's like a rotisserie. It, it really is. Over the course of an hour, the spacecraft very slowly would rotate around its long axis in order to keep the uh, heat distribution even across its surface. Because otherwise you'd get the direct sunlight part that could be heated over 200 C. The shadowy parts would be minus 100 C. Uh, it would cause damage to spacecraft components over time. So they did the barbecue roll in order to kind of even out the temperature over time so that every everything on the spacecraft would get an equal amount of time in shadow and sunlight. You want your command service module cooked evenly all the way through. Yeah, I like to put a little uh, olive oil on the outside before, because so, that really browns it That's a it good up. tip. <laughs> Apollo 7 may have had its famous head colds, but Apollo 8 had something far more unpleasant. The trio had been up for some 16 hours when the first sleep shift came up. NASA, as part of this mission, had decided that at least one crew member should be awake at all times to deal with problems that may arise. Uh, Borman was up first and found it difficult to sleep thanks to the noise. After taking a second sleeping pill, he woke up and vomited, which was accompanied later by diarrhea. Yeah, so Borman, you know, Army guy, commander of the mission, no nonsense, uh, 
Lovell accidentally inflated his life vest during the ascent <laughs> and like has said that for the rest of his life he'll never forgive the or forget the withering look that Frank Borman gave him like what are you doing Lovell <laughs> right and then this happens to him yeah. it's like so oh the indignity so uh he didn't want the world to be aware <laughs> that this was going on so the crew recorded a description of the events and sent them to the ground with telemetry data asking ground control to review the associated audio so it's very clever um after meeting, NASA concluded it was either a 24-hour flu, which is what Borman thought it was, or a reaction to that second sleeping pill. However, many now believe he fa- had fallen victim to space adaptation syndrome, which is space sickness. It affects about a third of astronauts during their first day in space. This was an unexplored space flight challenge in Mercury and Gemini, as there was no real room to move around and have your inner ear do weird things in those small capsules, whereas Apollo, they could move around. And so he got space sick. It happens. But they didn't know that then. Yeah, because... Until this point, there was only one Apollo mission, and those three guys avoided this, but the next three guys, one of them, just by the law of numbers, will have it. So yep, there you go. Sorry, Frank Borman. Uh, After these bumps and messes, the rest of the cruise phase was pretty smooth sailing. The crew broadcast a live TV program from from the spacecraft two times, worked on sleeping, but outside of the sleep shifts initially dictated. 55 hours after liftoff, the crew became the first humans to enter the gravitational sphere of influence of the moon. 11 hours later, they prepared for lunar orbit insertion. And 69 hours after launch, a four-minute SPS burn put Apollo 8 into orbit around the moon. Like re-entry burns from low Earth orbit, this burn had to go exactly as planned. Uh, Being slingshot around the moon into space or even crashing to the surface were possibilities if the burn time was incorrect. Now, ground control wouldn't know if the burn had been successful until the spacecraft came out of radio blackout as it came around the far side of the moon. Uh, Mercifully, everything had gone perfectly. Apollo 8 orbited the moon at a distance of 111.8 kilometers above the surface. The three astronauts were the first humans to ever look upon the far side of the moon with their own eyes. And not too long thereafter, they sent back the first live TV pictures from lunar orbit. Apollo 8, uh, this is Houston, reading you loud and clear. Uh, we see your TV. Uh, it's a little bit, uh, little bit clear. Roger, the moon is uh, very bright and uh, not too distinct in this area. I'll give you Shiloh Horizon. Roger. Apollo 8 Houston, we're beginning to pick up a few uh, craters uh, very dimly. The whole thing is pretty bright. Roger, there's not much definition up here either on the horizon. We're now approaching the uh, crater C and Bassett. Uh, Roger. I'll shift to the rendezvous window. Roger, Bill. Uh, Apollo 8, Houston, we want to take the DSC. Uh, Roger, you got it? Roger. Looks like we got a real good picture now. Okay, that's the crater brand. Roger. The astronauts had been schooled on lunar geography and called out the names of various craters and mountains for viewers. One mountain shaped like a triangle had been nicknamed by Lovell Mount Maryland for his wife. 
He used the name often during the mission in the hope that it would eventually not be able to be referred to as anything else. I kind of like that. It's like a nickname you want to stick <laughs> and just keep using it. Mm-hmm. People will pick up on it. Uh, Lovell was successful, but it took some time. On July 26, 2017, at long last, the International Astronomical Union formally named the mountain Mount Maryland. He got what he wanted. It just took him almost 50 years to get there. (laughs) Apollo 8's lunar orbits changed a lot about how humans perceive their place in the universe. One of the first ways this happened is by Jim Lovell's casual use on the first broadcast of the word Earthshine to describe the light reflected off the lunar surface by the Earth. And then there was the photo. Mm -hmm. On their fourth pass behind the moon, Anders needed Borman to maneuver the capsule so it would be properly positioned for some photographs he needed to take of the lunar surface. The spacecraft's windows were pointed to the lunar horizon, and that meant the astronauts were in the perfect position to see the Earth rise above the limb of the moon. Oh, my God, look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow, is that pretty? Hey, don't take that. It's not scheduled. <laughs> you got a color film, Jim? Hand me a roll of color quick, Oh, you? man, that's crazy. Where is it? Quick. It's out here. Just grab me a color. A color exterior. There you go. Got one? Yeah, I'm looking for one. C-368. Anything, quick. Here. Hey, I've got it right here. Let me get up this a lot clearer. Still, I got a phrase that's very clear right here. The Earthrise photo taken on Christmas Eve 1968 would go on to be one of the defining images, not just of the Apollo program, but of the 20th century. It has become a symbol of the vastness of space and the fragility of our home planet. Next up for the media stars of Apollo 8 would be a broadcast on Christmas Eve in the Western Hemisphere. NASA knew that it would probably be the largest audience for any broadcast in human history, with more than a billion people watching transmissions from another world. But before they did that, they needed to get some sleep. They'd been going mostly without sleep since they got to the moon. Borman tried to sleep for an hour, but got woken up again early by noises and talking. Finally, Borman radioed to Houston that he wanted all of Lovell and Anders' tasks scrubbed for the next few hours so that they could get some sleep. He basically radios back and says, they're not going to do any work. I'm going to get them to sleep. And uh, you didn't need to tell Jim Lovell twice. The, 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 his snoring was almost immediately heard on the radio back in Houston. <laughs> so that, that did work. Good job, Commander Borman, for, uh, for making those guys sleep uh, because they, they, they had to get some sleep before that broadcast and they had really, really been going intently for a long time. The Aserots knew they needed to say something meaningful on the television broadcast, but were given no guidelines from NASA different agency than it is today with its massive PR machine. Borman, Lovell, and Anders were out of ideas, so they approached a couple of writers and marketers who worked for the government. Joe Layton, a former wire service reporter who worked in the White House, struggled with the assignment until his wife walked into his kitchen writing area at four in the morning and told him that she had figured it out. 
It's writer's block. It happens, I guess. It definitely does. It's four in the morning and you're in the kitchen and your wife wanders in and gives you the answer. It's pretty great. <laughs> Everyone approved and it was inserted into the Apollo 8 flight plan. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise. And uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning was the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament. And divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning was the second day. God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered in together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas, and God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. After 10 orbits of the moon, Apollo 8 lost signal with the Earth one final time and over the lunar far side ignited the engine for trans-Earth injection. Fifteen minutes later, Jim Lovell's voice came over the radio as they emerged from the far side of the moon saying, Houston, Apollo 8, please be informed there is a Santa Claus. (laughs) No harmonica playing this time with this Christmas prank. Thank goodness this is much better on all levels. On Christmas Day, the astronauts got a special Christmas dinner and meal packets that were much heavier than usual and tied with a green ribbon, which I think is a nice touch. It's festive, yeah. Each one was turkey and gravy with cranberry sauce and stuffing. There was also a miniature bottle of brandy, which none of them drank because they felt too fatigued and were worried that if anything went wrong, someone would blame the drunk crew on Apollo 8. (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 and their instincts were probably correct there was room for one more glitch in the mission before re-entry and it was because Lovell was exhausted and into the Apollo computer he punched verb 37 and noun 01 when he was supposed to enter verb 3723 and noun 501. And now if any of us have been tired and we've been typing something and made a horrible typo, you got to feel for Jim Lovell here. Of course, what his uh, mistake did was start the thrusters firing to reorient the capsule from nose forward to nose up because it thought it was on the launch pad. And uh, that also cleared all of the the memory from the computers. So Lovell had to realign the entire guidance platform by making a bunch of visual star observations and punching in the data. Uh, however, that skill would come in very handy during Apollo 13, as it turns out. So it's good that uh, Jim Lovell had a little training here. But they were all punchy. They all lacked a lot of sleep. And it's not surprising that something like this but happened. Don't spoil what happens in Apollo 13 in for Apollo me. 13, that's, yeah, that's about later. Yeah. We'll, we'll deal with that not, in a couple years. Not familiar years, with sure. that one. 
No, it's a great story. You're going to love it. (laughs) Since no capsule had ever returned from the moon, this would be the first time any spacecraft had returned to Earth with this much velocity, some 25,000 miles per hour. This meant the heat shield would reach 2,700 degrees Celsius. Yeah, the astronauts ended up pulling about 6.8 Gs at the peak of re-entry, and they landed hard in the Pacific Ocean. They landed at 21 miles per hour impact of the uh, of the ocean. But they had these like collapsible uh, couches mm-hmm. and, with struts on them that just collapsed when they hit, that, as was the plan. However, the mission was not completed yet because the splashdown happened at 4.51 a.m. local time out in the Pacific. And guess what, Stephen? That's when sharks do their hunting in the early morning hours. Oh, no. And the Navy was like, let's just wait it out. So they waited until dawn to get their frogmen in the water. And then it took another hour to add a flotation collar to the capsule and extract the crew. It's a bad look if your astronauts survive liftoff, going around the moon 11 times, re-entry, and then are killed by sharks. It's not not good. I agree. Uh, In this meantime, all three astronauts were bobbing up and down in six-foot waves, and the capsule started to heat up in the tropical air. The waves flipped the capsule over into the stable two position. Basically, it landed right side up, but then got knocked upside down. So now the astronauts were hanging from their straps. I like, I love stable two. That may be one of my favorite NASA euphemisms, (laughs) which is literally it is the capsule's fine. It is also upside (laughs) Upside down. down. (laughs) So Anders radios back, get us out of here. I'm not the sailor on this boat because he and Borman were Air Force. Lovell was with the Navy. Uh, still, Anders and Lovell managed to fight off seasickness, but poor Frank Borman, he did it again. Oh, no. Made a mess in the capsule. They're going to have to mop that up before they put it in a museum. Welcome back to Earth, boys. <laughs> You're in a hot, bumping around capsule, hanging from straps, and there's also vomit around. Yeah. Uh, the first thing the astro- astronauts did when they were safe and sound was to... To take a shave. Seems like something, Jason, mm-hmm. I think you could appreciate. Yeah, got to do it. You don't want to be uh, beardy for for your... In 1968, you really don't want to be beardy. Mm-hmm. The helicopter bringing them back to the USS Yorktown had been instructed to bring along an electric shaver, and Borman put it to good use. Yeah, he was. He did not want to be ribbed like he had been, I think, on a, on one of the Gemini missions for, for coming back uh, with a bit of a beard. Uh, but beards aside, the astronauts were welcomed back as heroes. They appeared before a joint meeting of Congress. They got telegrams from world leaders. They were awarded NASA's Distinguished Service Medal by President Johnson. They got a ticker tape parade in New York. They visited the United Nations. Pretty much everything you get when you are a famous returning space hero, and it's early 1969. But while those guys were getting celebrated... The Apollo program kept on going. In just over nine weeks, Apollo 9 would be in orbit testing the lunar module. Apollo 10 was on the drawing board for late spring, combining Apollo 8's lunar orbit mission with the lunar test of the limb. And then, in the summer, it would come time for Apollo 11. Early on, there was a possibility that the crew of Apollo 8 would be asked to land on the moon in Apollo 11. Reports conflict about whether Deke Slayton actually offered the job to Frank Borman. Andrew Chaikin's book, A Man on the Moon, says it was offered and Borman turned it down. Jeffrey Kluger's book, uh, Apollo 8, just says that Slayton thought better of it. It's unclear what that means to me. Either way, Borman felt he had done his job with Apollo 8 and he was ready to retire as an astronaut. He went on to be the CEO and chairman of Eastern Airlines for many years. Where I assume he threw up less on the job. <laughs> I, I don't know. I would hope. Yeah. Jim Lovell was also relieved not to be a part of Apollo 11 because he would have been in the center seat and would not have been able to land on the moon, just orbit from above again. 
He wanted the chance to walk on the moon, and he'd have the chance with Apollo 13, although we know how that worked out. Yeah, yeah. Bill Anders was disappointed he wouldn't get a chance to fly on Apollo 11. He suspected he'd never get a chance to go to the moon again. Even if he did, the seniority system in the astronaut program almost guaranteed that he'd be in the center seat and wouldn't get to fly the LEM like he had trained. Instead, he decided to retire, and he retired upward. He became a part of the National Aeronautics and Space Council, working with the Nixon administration to formulate space policy. Anders was later U.S. ambassador to Norway under President Ford and CEO of the military contractor General Dynamics. There are some unusual things about the Apollo 8 crew. First off, they're the only complete crew who is, at least as of this recording in late 2018, still alive. Borman and Lovell both turned 90 this year, and Bill Anders turned 85. They're also known as the original wives crew, because unlike most astronauts at the time, all three of these men remained married to the same women they married when they were young, with many grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Liftoff. But just like Apollo, we will be back in uh, roughly nine weeks, eight or ten, given the fortnight, with Apollo 9. It just keeps on happening. And, of course, we'll have regular episodes between now and then, every fortnight or so. Absolutely. If you want to read more about Apollo 8, uh, we have a bunch of links in the show notes uh, to NASA stuff, to videos, all sorts of things. You can go uh, go deep dive on this. Head over to relay.fm slash liftoff slash 87 for that. While you're there, you can get in touch with us via email. There's a link to our Tumblr where Jason and I share space-related stories and links in between episodes. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. Jason is Snell, and you can find me there as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.